Our text today is from the great final discourse of Jesus in the Gospel of John. The night before he, he is arrested, or the night he is arrested, the day before he dies, he's with his disciples and he teaches them for three chapters. And these three chapters are among the most beautiful chapters in scripture, and they're all familiar to you, I know. And we could easily spend like a long seminar day going through these three chapters. What we're going to do tonight is simply extract the places where Jesus speaks specifically about the Holy Spirit. This is one of the places in the New Testament where we have the clearest teaching about who the Holy Spirit is and how he relates to the Father and how he relates to Jesus. And so we're just going to be looking at those verses. So we're going to jump around a little bit. I don't really like doing this. It feels disrespectful of the text in a way. I'd rather read all three chapters to you, but I think maybe that's not the best use of our time. So I encourage you at some point to read all three chapters as a unit and see how these wonderful teachings about the Holy Spirit uh, fit into that context. Now, as we prepare to hear the word of God, let's ask for the Spirit's assistance. Holy Spirit, come into our hearts and prepare us to receive this, your living and active word. Make us into good soil. May we receive this word as a seed and may it bear fruit in our lives. We pray in the name of Jesus, who is the word made flesh. Amen. So starting in chapter 14 with verse 15, chapter 14, verses 15 and 17. If you love me, you will keep my commandments and I will ask the father and he will give you another advocate to be with you forever. This is the spirit of truth whom the world cannot receive because it neither sees him nor knows him. You know him because he abides with you and he will be in you. Moving down to verse 25. I have said these things to you while I am still with you, but the advocate, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, will teach you everything and remind you of all that I have said to you. Peace I leave with you, my peace I give to you. I do not give to you as the world gives. Do not let your hearts be troubled, and do not let them be afraid. In chapter 15, near the end of the chapter, verse 26, when the advocate comes, whom I will send to you from the Father, the Spirit of truth who comes from the Father, he will testify on my behalf. You also are to testify, because you have been with me from the beginning. And then chapter 16, beginning at verse 5. But now I am going to him who sent me. Yet none of you asks me, where are you going? But because I have said these things to you, sorrow has filled your hearts. Nevertheless, I tell you the truth. It is to your advantage that I go away. For if I do not go away, the advocate will not come to you. But if I go, 
I will send him to you, and when he comes, he will prove the world wrong about sin and righteousness and judgment. About sin, because they do not believe in me. About righteousness, because I am going to the Father, and you will see me no longer. About judgment, because the ruler of this world has been condemned. I still have many things to say to you, but you cannot bear them now. When the Spirit of truth comes, he will guide you into all the truth. For he will not speak on his own, but will speak whatever he hears, and he will declare to you the things that are to come. He will glorify me, because he will take what is mine and declare it to you. All that the Father has is mine. For this reason I said that he will take what is mine and declare it to you. This is the word of the Lord. So, I would like to start with chapter 16, verse 7. This really provocative idea. I tell you the truth, it is to your advantage that I go away. For if I do not go away, The advocate, the paraclete, will not come to you. But if I go, I will send him to you. It is to your advantage that I am leaving you. Now, do you think that the disciples believed that when they first heard it? No. I'm not sure I believe it. I mean, I do mentally, I I think I see why it's to our advantage that Jesus is not with us, but emotionally it's hard for me to accept that it's actually for our good that he's not here. Don't we all wish that we had been there and followed him around for three years and listened to him teach. Don't we all wish that we could have had that experience? Don't we all think that really if we had to choose, we would choose that over whatever kind of revelation we are currently receiving? Doesn't that seem like obviously the better thing? But Jesus says, no, it is to your advantage that I leave because I will send to you the Holy Spirit. So I want to consider three questions, and we're going to look at these various passages which repeat a lot of these answers. So the first question is, well, what advantage do we actually receive from the Holy Spirit's coming? What is that big advantage? Secondly, does that really outweigh the apparent disadvantage of the absence of Jesus? And thirdly, Well, why do we have to choose? Why does Jesus have to leave in order for the Spirit to come? Why can't they both be here at the same time? Why does he have to go first? So I'm going to spend most of my time on the first question. So don't worry if it goes on a little while. The second and third are quicker. But what is the great advantage we receive from the Holy Spirit? from the coming of the Spirit. Well, three times uh, Jesus refers to the Holy Spirit as the paraclete, which my translation, and I think also the NIV, translates as advocate. 
There's not a great translation for this word paraclete. That's why older translations just make it into an English word. Let's just say paraclete, because how are we going to come up with a word that captures all the ideas here? Some translations say comforter, helper, and those are good ideas too. Paraclete means one who comes alongside you. And that could be a technical word for someone who went into court with you, which is, I think, why advocate has been prepared or preferred in recent translations. But I think the big idea is one who is there beside you, who is near you, who is with you. Jesus knows the disciples are worried about being alone, and he says, I'm sending you the one whose very nature is withness, the one who is going to be with you. That's his, his title, the paraclete, the with you one. Early in the, the book of Genesis, we discover that being alone is not good for us. That even without sin, we are not meant to be alone. We are meant to be with other people. We are meant to be accompanied in life. And so Adam is told it's not good for you to be alone. You're going to have a helper who is fit for you, who is like you, who meets you. A helper who meets you, right? Who's designed for you. Because you need that. Well, that's an important part of human life, how other human beings come alongside us and help us and meet us. But ultimately, the Holy Spirit is a more true helpmeet for us than Eve ever was for Adam. Because when God designed human beings, he breathed into us. And no, he didn't breathe a little bit of himself into us. I, I have wondered if that's what that passage says. I have sometimes wished that's what that passage says. It's not what the passage says. He breathed into us, but he, he created, I think, an opening in us, a space within us that God then occupies, that the Spirit occupies. In the New Testament, we're told we are temples of the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit wants to move in, and that's there already from the beginning. We are made to be walking tabernacles of God's presence. That's what it is to be made in God's image. We're not little mini-gods, not at all. I hope you all know that we're creatures, and so we're not little mini-deities, and we're not Mormons, and we don't think that way. No, what we are is God receivers with a God-shaped space that God wants to fill. And we don't become fully human until he fills us. Now, it's my belief that the Holy Spirit did not do that for Adam and Eve, that that would have happened if they had sustained the temptation is my belief that the first human being who was fully filled with the Holy Spirit the way we are designed to be filled was Jesus. Because when he was baptized, the Spirit came down on him. Now, of course, in his divinity, Jesus, God the Son, and God the Spirit, and God 
the Father are all one being. He had no need of being any closer to the Spirit, but his human nature was occupied by the Holy Spirit the way our nature should be occupied. And the promise of a paraclete is of one who is going to be that occupier, the one who is going to move in, who is going to fill that space, who will always be with us. Jesus says to the disciples, you already know him. He's already near you. He's already beside you. He's going to be within you. He's going to be inside you, just as he has been with Jesus. And the disciples may not have realized that they already knew him, that they already had him nearby. But of course he was because he was with Jesus. There was never a moment that they'd been with Jesus when they weren't also with the presence of the Holy Spirit. So they had been encountering the Spirit all this time, and now he was going to be with them. So Jesus can say in a verse I didn't read, I don't leave you orphaned. I don't leave you orphaned because this one is coming who will be with you. The second thing he says over and over is that the Holy Spirit is the spirit of truth. Now, there are a lot of Greek words for truth. And this is not the most technical understanding of truth. This isn't truth in the sense of, you know, the, uh, a math proof, maybe, which you discover to be true through reason. This is truth in the sense of something that is revealed, something that is exposed. It's truth in the sense of what is real? What is reality? What, what is the nature of life? What are the true things about the structure of reality? That's the kind of truth the Holy Spirit is. He's a spirit who reveals that. He helps us to see beyond all the illusions that are in our world as a result of our sin. All the things we believe that are nonsense. The things we believe about what is right and what is wrong. He helps us see the truth of that. So Jesus says he's going to show the world to be wrong about sin and about righteousness and about judgment because he's going to reveal to you what is real about those things. And in each one of those things, it's because of Jesus. The Spirit will be pointing us to Jesus. You want to know what sin is? Look at Jesus, the sinless one, and see what a sinless human being is supposed to be like. Measure yourself against him and discover the reality of what is sin. You want to know what is righteousness. The world is saying to you that Jesus was a failure and a loser, and that he died a cursed death, but he has been vindicated because he has returned to his father and he is the embodiment of righteousness. And if you want a standard of righteousness, Jesus is that standard. You, you want to know about judgment? The world says to you, don't worry about judgment. Evil is what pays in this world. And if you can get away with that, it shows how smart you are, how clever you are, and you should be applauded. But the Spirit is going to teach us that 
in the resurrection of Jesus, Satan has been defeated. The powers of evil are already under condemnation and there is a judgment to come. The judgment that the Old Testament was always clamoring for, always begging for, always saying, God, please come judge the world. Get rid of all the the evil in the world that is oppressing us. That judgment is coming. There really is a standard of goodness and of righteousness, and there really is a judgment on evil. And the Spirit will continue to tell you those things and to convict you of those things. Think of who these people are to whom Jesus is saying all of this. These disciples, most of whom will die horrific deaths because of their testimony to him. Think of how often they must have been in places where they could so easily have felt alone. Think of how often they must have been in places where the lies of the world would have seemed so easily true. And yet Jesus is promising them the spirit, the paraclete, the one with you will be there always. You will not be alone. And he will be speaking to you the truth. He will be revealing to you the truth. He will even be doing this this thing that seems kind of mundane compared to showing you the structure of reality. But he'll be helping you remember all the things I ever said so that you can report them accurately. What a great gift that is to all of us who have these gospels, thanks to the gift of the Holy Spirit, helping them to remember all the things that Jesus said so that they could teach his teaching accurately, teaching they had not understood when they first heard it, how easy it would have been to misremember. But the Holy Spirit equips them to be truth-tellers because he is the spirit of truth. He equips them to be the ones who go out and testify to Jesus because he testifies to Jesus inside of them. The spirit is, is giving eyes of faith to people, right? Even when when we know that reality is not the way it looks to us, even when we know that God is really in charge and evil is not winning, even when we know that there is a glorious future in front of us, not despair, sometimes it's hard to believe those things. But the Spirit ignites this faith in what is true, in those he occupies. C.S. Lewis has a a great example about faith in mere Christianity. He says he has a a sort of panicked reaction to being put under anesthesia. He says whenever he's being put under anesthesia, he has this, this panicked idea that this person's trying to kill me. I'm sure this person's trying to kill me. And he says, what is faith? But at that moment of panicked irrationality saying, no, this is someone working for my good. Faith is the voice of truth, the the voice of reason, the voice that is saying what is real, 
when our panicked, irrational response to the world makes it hard for us to believe. And the Holy Spirit is the one speaking that into us all the time because he is occupying us. He is the one who is saying to us, look at Jesus, fix your eyes on Jesus, remember Jesus, recite the words of Jesus, keep your focus there. And that is where you find what is true. Jesus also says in one place that the Spirit is sent by the Father, and then the next time that the Spirit is sent by Him. And so throughout these sections of this discourse, Jesus is laying out an interesting way in which the Father and God the Son, who He is, and the disciples are starting maybe to get a hint of that, and God the Spirit, how these three persons of the Trinity relate to one another. It's actually because of this final discourse, because Jesus himself says, both the Father sends the Spirit and I send the Spirit, that in the Nicene Creed, we speak about the Holy Spirit as the one who proceeds from the Father and the Son, who with the Father and the Son is worshiped and glorified. That idea that somehow the Spirit proceeds both from the Father and from God the Son. And then Jesus also tells us the Spirit turns back. He is sent from both, and he comes back and glorifies the Son, who then glorifies the Father. So there's this beautiful movement within the triune communion of sending and return, in which the Spirit is very central. Now, in the Eastern Orthodox tradition, that's not how they understand the procession of the Spirit. That's how the Western Church, Protestants and Catholics, understand the procession of the Spirit from both the Father and the Son. In the East, they typically think the Spirit and Jesus both process only from the Father. And because of that, they'll talk about the Father in a monarchical way. The Father is the monarch. He's, he's in charge of the Trinity. And they'll often talk about the two hands of the Trinity being the Son and the Spirit. To Western ears like mine, that sounds subordinationist, and it doesn't make me terribly happy uh, to think that God the Father is somehow really God, and the other two persons not quite so much. But that's not how we think in the West because of this passage. We think, no, actually, the unifying person within the triune communion is the Spirit. It is the Spirit who is the union of the three persons. It is the Spirit who, according to Augustine, especially should be named love because he is the love between the Father and the Son. It is the Spirit who is the uniter within the triune communion. He is the uniter between us and Jesus. He is the uniter between us and one another. He is the uniter between us and the world we live in. He is the one who is constantly weaving a great web of glory and love that connects us to each other and to God and to the world because that's his function. That's who he is. He is the one who unites and who connects and who binds together. So our second question, is that enough? All those gifts of the Spirit, is that enough to outweigh the apparent disadvantage 
of Jesus leaving. Well, the Spirit is within, and Jesus never was for his disciples. Jesus was external. Now, they knew him very well. But even the person you know best in the world that doesn't know everything going on inside of you. There are secrets we each have from everyone. And it's not even maybe because you want to be secretive. It's because it's simply not possible to capture yourself and hand that to another person. It's not possible for another person to step inside you. Some of you maybe have been married for decades and you may know each other very well. You may be able to finish each other's sentences. You may be able to predict a lot of things about this person. But even in long-term marriages, sometimes that person surprises you. Sometimes there are things you don't expect because even in the most intimate of human relationships, we don't know each other that well. Now, Jesus knew the disciples, but they didn't know him as well as they wanted to. He was always still external to them, but the Holy Spirit is within. He is not external. And more than that, when Jesus is talking about the Holy Spirit, coming to be within us, he also says, right after he says, I have not left you orphaned, he also says, and I'll be with you. I'll always be with you. He says that again at the end of Matthew too, you remember. He makes the promise, I will be with you always till the end of the age. Well, well, what does that mean? He's telling them he's leaving and he's saying, I'll never be away from you because God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit are one being. And when the Holy Spirit is within you, Jesus is too. In just the same way that Jesus has already said to Philip, if you've seen me, you've seen the Father. If you've received the Spirit within you, you've received Jesus. And so Jesus also says in chapter 14 in a little section I didn't read, those who love me will keep my word and my father will love them and we will come to them and make our home with them. I think the we includes the spirit and the father. It certainly includes both Jesus and the father. That when the spirit comes within us, which he has just promised a couple verses earlier, the father also moves in. And Jesus also moves in. That the triune communion is somehow moving within us and we are somehow part of this fellowship. We are incorporated into it as members of the family. That's what the Holy Spirit gives to us. Now, if Jesus had never ascended, had never returned to his father, it is unlikely that any of us would ever have met him in person. So even the external kind of knowledge would have been restricted to a very few people compared to the number of people there are in the world. Even if it became a normal thing for Christians, maybe once in your life to make a pilgrimage to wherever he was living, perhaps in Jerusalem. Maybe we would all be able to say, and I saw him from afar. Or maybe he would 
miraculously appear before various people and come to, to visit us. But how often? Because the Holy Spirit unites us to the triune communion, we have constant access to all three persons through prayer at any moment. At every moment of your life, you are in the presence of God. You are living before his face and you may speak to him and count on him listening to you. And the Holy Spirit is empowering that relationship. The intimacy that you have been given through the work of the Spirit is far greater than anything the disciples knew. We know that even though Jesus was constantly teaching them, it was not until after he left and the Spirit came that they began to understand. I heard a sermon this morning, as I think you did, on uh, Acts chapter 2. And there is Peter in Acts chapter 2, quoting the Old Testament, seeing how it all applies, understanding all of the connections, being able to explain to people that the Word had all prepared for Jesus. He didn't know any of that. Two weeks prior, the Holy Spirit was teaching him right there, giving him the testimony that he needed to the presence of Jesus in the world still. Jesus is also not just passive in heaven now. Jesus is ruling the world he is seated on the throne that was supposed to be the throne for Adam and Eve, who were supposed to rule the world, but who rather messed that up. He is now being the perfect human, fulfilling human destiny and, and exercising lordship while also exercising priesthood, making intercession for us. So Jesus is working for us. Jesus is available to us. And through the Spirit, we can know about these things. Still, the third question lingers. Why does Jesus need to leave for this Spirit to come? Couldn't we have both? Even if the Spirit is better, couldn't we have both? Well, Jesus says, uh, toward the end of, at the end of the passage I read from chapter 16, all that the Father has is mine. For this reason, I said that he will take what is mine and declare it to you. The Spirit is going to take what belongs to Jesus, and he will declare it to you. Well, what is all that is Jesus's? What is it that is going to be given to us? The thing is that as Jesus is saying this, before he has died, before he has descended into hell, before he has risen triumphant, and before he has ascended, he is sinless. He, he has a sinless humanity from the moment of his conception, but he is still bearing the weight of sin. His body is corruptible. He's capable of dying. He is capable of suffering great pain. He is not yet living as a glorified human being. And he can't give to us 
the glorified humanity that we need in order to be repaired from the effects of sin until he has it. And he has to have it by making it, by, by creating it in his own being. And that process is finished when he ascends into heaven and is seated at the right hand of the Father. And there, when he is a fully glorified human, there is now a fully glorified humanity, a human nature that is what human nature is supposed to be, that can be given to us, that can be communicated to us by the Holy Spirit. So when the Holy Spirit comes from Jesus, he comes from the ascended Jesus. And what he brings to us is a glorified humanity that renews our humanity. Jesus does not talk here the way Paul will talk about the Holy Spirit later as the one who sanctifies us, the one who unites us to Jesus so that we share in his dying and his rising so that we become different kinds of beings, different kinds of people, so that our nature is now his new nature. But that is surely some of what Jesus is thinking of when he talks about what belongs to him, that he will give to the Spirit to give to us. That perfected humanity is what is still missing. There's nothing missing in the divinity of Jesus. He is fully God, and that doesn't waver at any point. But what is not yet achieved at the time of this conversation is the fully glorified humanity. I think it is all right for us to miss Jesus. In fact, I think it's good for us to long for him, to wish we could see him. We are told that we should pray, Maranatha, come quickly, Lord Jesus. We should be eager for his return. We should be looking forward to a time when we see him face to face. But we should also know that what he is doing for us now is for our good. And that his work is continuing, work for us. Work of sovereignty, work of priesthood, work of hearing our prayers, the work of being the friend so faithful who can all your burdens bear, the work of still being like us in every way but sin, knowing our nature and understanding our weaknesses. Jesus is still that person to whom you may still speak. And the Spirit equips you to do that. But the Spirit is also remaking you into the likeness of Jesus every day from one degree of glory to another. So that when you see him face to face, you will be a glorified person too. Not at his level of glory, but sharing in his nature. Of course we should long for that. Of course we should miss him and want him. But we can also be grateful that it was indeed to our advantage that he went away. Let's pray, shall we? Lord Jesus, we thank you for the great gift that you have sent to us, the gift of your spirit. You know it is easy for us to discount him, to think less of him, to imagine him as some sort of vague power. We thank you that, in fact, we are being escorted into a community of love between three persons 
and that we, small though we are, are constantly being invited to partake in that love, to become fully human by being united with you and with your Father through the work of the Spirit and the presence of the Spirit in us. May we be open to that presence. May we not resist the Spirit's work, but may we surrender to all that he would lead us into so that we may every day be more like you. In your name we pray. Amen. Thank you for listening to the Grave Avenue CRC's Sermon Podcast.